0: Today at Horse Chats, we're going to talk to Wendy Murdoch. Now, we've chatted to Wendy Murdoch quite a few times before, including a wide variety of subjects, you know, like riding in South Africa, going on a safari and um, jumping position and riding tips. Today, we're going to talk to her about soft eyes. Now, when I saw the article on her website, I thought it was about horses. So when we talk about horses with soft eyes, we think about them blinking, you know, often associated with a bit of chewing as well and that bit of a change of attitude. So today we're going to talk about initially the rider's soft eyes. But before we do that, I'd just like to remind you that today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. The vision is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect, and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect, and enjoy their people. Have a look now at internationalhorsecollege.com. Just go to the website internationalhorsecollege.com. Actually, don't have a look now. Listen to this podcast and then have a look. Wendy, how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me back.
0: Wendy, we're talking about soft eyes. I had a look on your website, you know, just going through because you've got quite a few articles there and we always link at the bottom of your page. We always link to your website anyway. But tell us the background or the history of the, um, you know, soft eyes, hard eyes concept.
1: Well, yeah. You might remember that I apprenticed with Sally Swift back in 1992 yes. and in her book centered riding she's the one who coined the phrase soft eyes and really started talking about that and teaching that for riders um and then of course you know there's always that comparison between the horses and the people and and I think that soft eyes is one of those things that we can think about from both perspectives that of the horse and that of the rider um but Sally was basically looking at the difference in When we think about vision, we can have very focused vision or we can have what's called peripheral vision. And with peripheral vision, that's when you're driving down the road and you see the kangaroo on the side of the road, even though it's dark and you're looking straight ahead, you see it out of the corner of your eye. And so when we expand our vision or allow ourselves to use that peripheral vision, we take in a much broader and bigger scope and pick up. Things on the periphery on, that are subtle, but it softens so much in our nervous system when we look at things from that more um, global perspective rather than, you know, when you're working on the computer, you're staring at the screen. And, you know, when you get done, I don't know about you, but I, I'll be on my computer for up to six hours at a time. And you get done and your eyes are all fuzzy and you can't focus when you look out because you've been using a different part of your eye, you've been focusing and kind of. Um, you can use soft eyes at the computer, but the tendency is we tend to kind of focus in and tense a little bit and and do what Sally would have called hard eyes, which is sort of an intensity of focus. Um, you know, and it's not that I mean, there's times to have that kind of focus when we're when we're learning something. That that's a natural thing to do. We tend to hold our breath a little bit. We tend to tense our eyes a little bit. We tend to focus because we're trying to figure something out and trying to get that detail. But it's really important to then go back and think about looking at things from a larger visual perspective. So, you know, the the concept of soft eyes has been around. Sally's book's been out since 1985, I think. Wow, that's hard to believe. Um, The concept's been around a long time. Um, I've played with it and kind of used the concept in some slightly different ways and come up with some cool things for people to kind of practice that, and also in recognizing that same perspective for horses. So, you know, with horses, everybody recognizes the horse that's kind of like deer in the headlights and a bit stressed and not blinking. And it was really interesting because I was at the International Society for Equitation Science in uh, 2019 before the pandemic hit. And they were talking about recognizing signs of stress in horses. And one of the things that they said was that blinking is one of the best ways to see what state the horse is in, that they had looked at cortisol, they'd looked at um, heart rate variation, and um, there was another parameter. But they concluded that actually blinking was a better way to see whether or not a horse was stressed and this is something we see with Surefoot all the time, when the horses stand on the pads, you'll see the eyes soften, you'll see blinking increase, but you'll see deep blinking where the horses close their eyes very slowly and kind of pause for a second and then open them again. And, you know, I've seen that for years now with Surefoot and recognize that that, that's a great indicator of the nervous system calming down. So this idea of soft eyes, we can use whether that's A cat, a dog, a horse. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Sharon Wilsey's horse speak. Um, She talks about intentionally blinking when you're around an animal and that softening of your eyes and that blinking, and you'll get that same sort of response in the animals. And she's used it with everything from zebras to horses to, you know, I think dogs and cats. (laughs) I I practice it with my cats. Sometimes I'll just do some deep blinks when they're kind of like staring
0: at me for dinner. <laughs> so if I was going to say, right, soft eyes, you know, just just saying difference between them. You know, if we're just focusing on the eyes here, just the soft eyes, the blinking, but hard eyes might be a bit, almost like a startled horse, you know, without the blinking. So can you just differentiate it if you say soft eyes blink more, hard eyes don't, or is it a bit deeper than that?
1: And I think it's a little bit more than that, but I think blinking is a good indicator of, Uh, relaxation in the nervous system. In other words, you know, if you're not blinking, if you think of, you know, somebody who has to go and do public speaking, they're not used to it, and they get dry mouth and their eyes get really kind of fixed and staring, that's, that would be hard eyes. And then soft eyes is really, it's about seeing a larger field of vision. So, you know, a really simple exercise that your people can do while they're listening to this is if you just are sitting where you can have the full length of your arm out to your side and just bring your hand and your arm straight ahead of you and just see your index finger and then look straight ahead, but gradually take your arm to the side and just notice that as you move your arm to the side, you can still see it. You can actually see it at a 90-degree angle to your where you're facing, right, where your arm's straight out to the side, only you're looking ahead, and you can still see your hand. And in some cases, you might even actually be able to take the arm a little behind you and still, while looking straight ahead, see where your hand is. And so that's increasing that field of vision or using your peripheral vision, the vision that's more to the sides. And as you do that, that softens your focus. It takes in a much broader area. There's a relaxation that occurs because it's an expansion. Um, And so it's That's kind of what Sally was talking about with soft eyes. She used to do a really interesting exercise where she would, somebody would be sitting on a horse and she'd start to walk past them and have the person say when they couldn't see her anymore. And of course, you can get actually behind the person sitting on the horse because of their perspective being above. You can actually get behind them and they can still see you without turning their head right? When you really get into that expanded vision of peripheral vision. So, you know, when we think about hard eyes, we're kind of, think of the person that's staring at the jump and, you know, doesn't see that maybe they're in the warm up arena and they're staring at a jump and they don't see the rider coming in from the side of them that might run into them, right? Because they're too busy focusing straight ahead, not really taking in this larger field. I mean, we use soft eyes all the time, hopefully, when we drive our cars in traffic because if you're not kind of taking in the other vehicles in the other lanes, you know somebody could run into you. But that's a great place to practice it, by the way, is driving
0: or in, your in car the car, in traffic.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um because when you get really staring and you're clenching on the steering wheel and you're staring at the car in front of you and it's heavy traffic, that's hard eyes, <laughs> yep. Yep, soft eyes is seeing the spaces. I always love um, when I drive, I look for the spaces between the other cars instead of looking at the cars. And so that's another way to use soft eyes is really seeing where there's an opening, where there's a flow rather than, oh my God, that car in front of me is going to slam on their brakes and I'm going to run into them.
0: Yep, yep, yep. So just bringing that into, you know, and I'm just thinking as a competitor. So as a competitor there's often a lot of people riding, riding everywhere, and you get beginner competitors, not necessarily beginner riders, but people who haven't been in that, the warm-up arena, you know, and they haven't been there, (laughs) they haven't been there before, they're not used to it, and they're just so focused, I suppose they're a bit worried about the competition and focused on the competition, whereas more experienced competitors are just fine, you just ride around, And um, everyone keeps out of everyone's way. But as soon as you get a a less experienced, it's almost like the bigger shows are easier for the warm-up. But, you know, as soon as you get the smaller shows where people are going for their first competition, it becomes a bit of a nightmare in the warm-up arena.
1: Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, driving with a bunch of learner drivers versus driving with a bunch of experienced drivers. And in, in a way, it's the same kind of thing because the experienced driver knows how to handle the car. Knows how to look ahead, knows how to look for the spaces, whereas the, the inexperienced driver is worried about, you know, where do I put my foot on the brake? How do I steer? When do I put on my blinker? You know, they're worried about all these uh, things that as we have more practice and experience, we do it automatically and we don't have to think about it. So you're absolutely right that the person who's not used to the warm up arena, you know, you, you, it's tough. It's tough if it's a really busy show. Um, and you have a bunch of people that are kind of inexperienced because they don't have the comfort and the skill level of being able to look around to see the bigger picture. They're just kind of worried about, you know, is my horse okay? Am I okay? Am I breathing?
0: So it sounds like we need soft eyes sometimes, but we need hard eyes sometimes.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a place for hard eyes, and some people might disagree with me on that, but, you know, we we have it for a reason. So I always think, you know, when I go back to my Feldenkrais, experience, it's, you have all these options. You have an option to be hard with your eyes. You have an option to be soft. And the question is, what do you need now? Mm -hmm. You know? So if you, if you try to like not do it, um, and this is where I see people get in trouble. Um, and I've seen it with breathing and breathing and eyes are related, right? These things are all related, but you know, I'll see somebody who's, who's trying to learn something new and they're kind of staring at it. They're working really hard and they're not breathing. And then somebody yells at them to breathe. Well, they're, Trying really hard, and so when you yell at them to like not be hard eyes or not hold their breath, that it only makes it worse because they're like still trying to figure it out. Um, So you know, there's that's a natural reaction of the body when we're when we're focusing on something or learning something new or trying to do something in detail. We tend to get a bit over focused. But one of the things we can do there is recognize it, accept it, go, wow, okay, I'm in this process. This is fine. This is the state I'm in right now. And then as we get more experienced and we start to develop the movement patterns or the habit patterns and it becomes a little more unconscious, we'll start to notice, oh wow, I don't have to like crouch down and like peer at the thing while I'm trying to figure out how to put my bridle back together because I took it apart for the first time. Um I can kind of go, oh yeah, this is what I buckle this to this and this to this. And then we notice how the breathing comes in and we notice how the eyes soften and we notice how you know, like driving the car example, you can have the radio on and you're not going to worry about killing yourself because it's too distracting, right? So as we develop these habits, it's important to notice, wow, my breathing's easier. I'm not holding my breath as much. My eyes are softening. I can see more of the environment around me. And It's all part of the natural process of learning. So when I see people get real hard on themselves about doing something and then I shouldn't have done that, it's like, no, you're in that stage. Just be kind to yourself. Go, okay, this is the stage I'm in. And now what can I do to help make this easier or simpler or better? And, you know, that's the same for our horses, that if we see our horses get in a position where they're staring and they're starting to breath hold and their eyes are a little fixed and they're not blinking, it's an opportunity for us to stop and say, no, wait a second. What can I do to bring this horse down a little bit? Because I've noticed that he's not blinking. I've noticed that he's holding his breath. I've noticed that there's a little more tension in his body or his legs are a little bit stiffer. That's a warning sign. And if I can pick up on that warning sign and go, wait a second, you know, even though he looks calm, mm, he's not blinking, then I can avoid a bigger, situ- uh, you know, a way that the horse has to express in a louder way, I'm not okay, right? So when we start to pick up on these things and recognize, well, my horse is not blinking, that's like, wait a second what's going on and look and check in our environment. Is there something in the environment that's got him? Oh yeah. He's staring at that vehicle over there that he hasn't seen before. And it's coming toward him. He's a little worried. So what can I do? Well, the first thing I can do is take a breath and actually blink my eyes a little bit because I'm standing next to him. And that will already impart some reassurance to my horse that, okay, I'm not staring. I'm okay. Can you be okay? And then What action do we need to take to help that horse feel safer so that we can watch and see, oh, he's blinking, his eyes have softened, his neck is lowered, oh, there's his breathing. So, you know, I find that there's so many analogies. Yes, horses process information differently than we do, right? And yes, we can make associations of things. We can go, that's a truck and that's a truck and that's a truck, even though they all look totally different. Horses don't have that capacity. But we both have the capacity to recognize, am I safe? Do I feel safe? And so our nervous system alerts us to these things by hard eyes, by holding our breath. And also the same for the horse. And so when we start to recognize, wow, I'm feeling a little tense, what's my, oh, look, he is too. How can we together calm ourselves a little bit so we feel a little safer, so that he can relax, he sees me model that behavior, blinking, purposefully taking a breath, you know, softening my mouth, making sure I'm not dry. And then that actually, you know, they pick up on that. That's the coolest thing, you know, whether you're in the saddle or holding on to them, they pick up on that stuff. They get it much faster than we do.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification, that is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. What about, you know, thinking from the rider's point of view, is there ever a time when you've got to tell the rider to sharpen up, you know, the rider's got soft eyes all the time and you go, Hey, wake up, you know, like, is there ever, ever <laughs> that time? Have you come across, you know, those, just talk a little bit Are too relaxed? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, there are some people that are naturally quite laid back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if they're going to go into a competition, they might need to brighten up a little bit, but, I think what we're talking about here is the difference between unfocused and focused, you know, and so you have hard eyes. This is like too focused. It's staring. It's hard. Soft eyes. You're taking in the larger field of vision, but unfocused, you're not there. And so you're just kind of like in lava land and there's low tone. You're not getting yourself organized and prepared. So, you know, I always say, where's the middle? and and i think that that's exactly what you're bringing up here is that you know that unfocused kind of you can you can think of like my classic example is like a teenage boy who's growing or you know and they're they're consuming huge amounts of food and sleeping a lot and they're not really up to speed on function cuz they're growing um and so that's a great example of sort of that unfocused kind of like you know, moment. So yeah, there's that middle ground of being alert, attentive, present, taking in your environment, seeing a larger picture so that you keep yourself safe.
0: So Wendy, we've talked about soft eyes, hard eyes, and you've really expanded a lot, you know, so that we can really, really got the picture there. But this whole concept, I know that you've, you've got a really unique way of teaching writers to look up, you know. So to me, I just think, well, there's like three fields of vision. Most of the time, especially if you're in the arena, you want to look around, be accurate, look at the letters, everything else. But then you also want to be able to look beyond the arena. So beyond the arena would mean that, you know, making sure that there's no loose horses galloping next to the arena, that the dog, there's not a a loose dog somewhere that's ready to walk across the arena there's no car or truck coming that's about to crash into the arena and actually we had a kangaroo a while ago that (laughs) pops straight into the arena and straight down the long side um things like this that we've got to worry about so and also too you know maybe just glancing occasionally at the horse but the amount of riders that go around it's almost like a focus and looking down looking at the horse looking at the horse looking at the horse and they're not riding accurately they're not looking around they're not looking beyond the arena you've got a unique way of teaching riders to look up so you don't have to yell look up anymore tell us a bit about that and and also how you came to it you know like like a little bit about how you came to it
1: so you know we we don't look at our horses to make our instructor miserable right i mean we're not <laughs> look, that's not the intention of looking down a person's primary our number one sense is our vision is our eyes right? And so, you know, when, when we're riding, we want to look at the horse's head and see where it's at. And we tend to look down or we're trying to gather some information. And so we tend to look down, We tend to look at the horse's head. The problem with that is is when you drop your head down like that, you actually put your horse on the forehand because you take your 10 pound head, 10 to 20 pounds, and you've dropped it forward. And so now you've created tension in your back and you put the weight forward. And so that, actually does affect the horse. So we're looking down because that's our primary sense. And what we really want to do is be able to feel our horse, right? That's, you know, good riders can feel what their horse is doing underneath them. But that's not our primary way of gathering information. Vision is our primary way. So quite a number of years ago, I went to the evidence-based horseman workshop with Martin Black and Dr. Stephen Peters. And they were talking about horse's vision. And as they were talking, they pointed out that the horse's pupil is horizontal. And, you know, we all have looked in a horse's eye. We, we know that at one level. But we hadn't thought about, well, what is it like to see when you have a horizontal pupil? So um, after that workshop, I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to help people understand what the horse's vision is like, because when you understand that you understand why horses shy in the corner. So I I made some glasses and I taped plain plain glasses and I taped off a space so that there was just a slit for people to look through. And I would take these to my clinics and I would put them on people and I'd say, "Okay, this is what a horse is seeing. They've got horizontal pupils." And then if you're wearing those glasses and you want to see down close to you, you really have to turn your whole head and shift your head over to the side because you only have this horizontal pupil, and you have to line it up with what you're trying to see. Well, when you think about a horse with a 40-pound head at the end of a three-foot lever arm, his neck, and he's trying to see something close, and what we know is with horses, right, they raise and lower their head to to shift their depth perception to see things far off and see things close up. But if something's on their side, What they have to do is they have to tilt their head and cock it in a way to see, like let's use the corner of the arena, for example. Say there's a barrel there that they haven't seen before. They have to tilt their head and cock it to try and line up their eyes to see what this object is. And when they do that, they're not in a vertical balance. And so then we as the rider are trying to make the horse get in the corner. You know, we're either trying to pull him into the corner or kick him into the corner. And then they go, wow, somebody kicked me. And so it must be the thing in the corner. It bit me. I don't want to go in the corner anymore. Because in my experience, horses don't necessarily associate the pain they experience with the thing that caused that pain. And my illustration of that was one time we were doing a, a test with Surefoot at a university. And at the time, I didn't have my nice foam slanted pads. I had wood slants that someone had made for me. And this horse, we were about to put a pad underneath the front foot while she was standing on the slant, wood slant behind. And as we approached, she slipped back and the slant the wood slant hit her in the cannon bone. But what she saw was the pad near her front foot. And so then she was afraid of the pad. She didn't associate the pain with the wood slant on the back leg. She associated it with with what she cocked her head and saw near her front foot. And so we spent some time and got her over that and got her to recognize it's okay, nothing's going to hurt you. But it really made me see that horses may not necessarily associate the pain with where the source was, but with what they may have seen at the moment when it occurred. So going back to the example of the horse going into the corner, they're trying to line up their eyes. They're trying to see what that is. They have to cock their head. And then something happens that is like the rider trying to make the horse get out in the corner, whether they use their leg or maybe a stick. And so now the horse associates discomfort with the thing they're trying to see. Now, this is my theory, and but I've seen enough experience with this to see that it it holds up a bit. I just haven't, you know, I haven't done any research behind it, but it's a really interesting theory to think about because what that means is that when we recognize how horses see with these horizontal pupils, we start to change the way we think about it. It's like, wow, my horse can't really see what that is. He's trying to see what that is. What if I stop and give him a moment to explore so that he can adjust his eyesight, see the object, touch the object maybe with his whiskers, recognize it's not going to bother him, and make sure that the uh, you know there's a, a safe space on the other side of him as opposed to trying to face him straight into it. And now he can be okay with what's going on in that corner because he's had the opportunity to investigate and go, oh, ah, no big deal. So that was the intention behind the glasses was to put them on people and have them see the way horses see. And so, I mean, this is, went through years of evolution. I was um, at i um, – I've worked a few times with uh, a place where they have – uh, disabled veterans, and you have to be 80 to 100 percent disabled um, Marines that have come back from the theater and they ha- they have disabilities. And this one gentleman I was working with, he couldn't focus. He was hyper nervous. He had a cane. He couldn't walk on his own. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And so I pulled out my my glasses that had the limited vision and I gave them to him and he got quiet. And then he got a headache. And I was like, okay, that was too much. So I had him hold the glasses a bit away from his face and look through them. And then I had him go through my balance trail, which is all the surefoot pads where you have to deal with the unstable surfaces. And it was so shocking because suddenly this guy remembered doing martial arts prior to his service, prior to his injury. And the next thing we knew, he was able to focus, he was able to sit and talk to us, he didn't need his cane you know he wore the glasses to help limit his field of vision and it was like a transformation in minutes and it blew me away i mean completely blew me away so so now i had this experience with this limiting field so then i kept working on this idea and if we finally um i started using it with riders and watching horses come into balance when i limited the rider's field of vision when i made it so that looking down no longer had value because they, if they looked down, they couldn't see anything. The rider sat up more in balance, and the horses came up in balance. They could come up through the withers, and they came off forehand, and they went round, and all kinds of crazy things. So it it took us a few years, but we finally uh, have gotten this little project of mine into production. We call it look up glasses. They are available in Australia through our surefoot um, reseller over there, Joe Watman, and they're available in the United States. And They're just a simple pair of glasses, but they limit that vision. And because vision is our primary, by just limiting it, the rider has to look through the slit to the glasses. They have to look ahead, especially in jumping. And suddenly, you know, things come into balance. The horse can come up. And you're not yelling, look up, look up at the rider all the time, who's not trying to make your life miserable. They're just doing that to try and gather information
0: that That's wonderful, I think um your open mindedness and your ability to think right I'll experiment a bit with this. you know what what you said about the veteran It's people like you that just keep improving the horse world you know keep improving i'll keep I'll try this and I'll try that and and I think so long as we keep things safe, I think you know if all instructors had your ability to just say. Let's try this and let's try that. And I think that's part of just improving as a coach, improving as an instructor. You know, going out, listening to other coaches, seeing what they do, and just playing around and experimenting and taking it from the horse's point of view. I think that's really important.
1: Well, you're right. Safety's the first thing, right? I'm always like, you know, I always tell people if you, you know, if you need to take the glass off, just chuck them off, right? I mean, safety's always first, um, and then it's you know, when I watch students, they they get so caught up, and maybe this is a hard eyes thing, they get caught up in trying to do exactly what the trainers told them to do. But in trying so hard, they're not feeling their horse. They're not really with their horse, because they're trying to kind of put themselves into a shape or a box that they think is the thing they're supposed to do. And if we could just uh, uh, allow riders to have a little more latitude to experiment. And that's what I'm, I'm always telling my riders, look, go back and forth between the old place and the new place. Don't take my word for it. I'm just giving you a possibility. I'm just providing you with an experiment. So how does your horse respond? Does your horse go better? Do you feel more secure? Does it feel easier? And so when we kind of get out of the rigidness of teaching, and, I, and unfortunately, I think that comes from the military, which was absolutely necessary at the time because of, you know, you've got a job, you've got to go out there, your horse is your vehicle, he's got to carry you, you've got to make sure you take care of them, you know, and you're teaching men, um, young men that were very fit. When you think about the cavalry here in the United States, they were young, mostly farmers, you know, they were really athletic, but they were too rigid. And so they came up with a system to teach riding to kind of break that down. To break down the stiffness and the rigidity, to get them to ride more in balance. But the population's changed, and we're looking at mostly adult women that are riding now. And when we try to impose those sort of rigid uh, uh, instructions on women, a they're looking for relationship and partnership with their horse, and if they lose that, then you know they're losing the the thing that's in most cases the most valuable thing and when they're trying to put themselves into a into a box that someone said this is how you should sit or this is how you should ride but it's not taking into consideration their you know their crushed ankle or their funky hip or you know their arthritic hands then they struggle and they and they get um You know, it's just, it can be very self-defeating because they feel incapable because they can't fit themselves into the box that people are telling them they should be in. But when we give them permission to experiment and say, as long as it's safe, right, you do this quietly, maybe start off your horse first to experiment how that works, then on your horse standing still, then on your horse at the walk, but give them the opportunity to experiment and explore. Now we're talking about a conversation between that rider and that horse and the horse becomes the feedback. If I put my weight here, how do you hear that? What do you do? Oh, you kind of leaned in on that corner. Okay, so now where do I need to be that helps you be more upright, that helps you have a better balance? And so now we're into a dialogue, a conversation, uh, you know, uh, an exploration in partnership and in, you know, cause and effect so that we can see, ah, when I do this, this is what you do. When I do this, you do something else. And so I just really feel that 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 idea of as long as it's safe, you're on a quiet horse. You know, you wouldn't do this on a young, fractious horse that's never been sat on, obviously. But on a quiet horse where you can, can experiment and take your time slowly at first to get sort of the the lay of the land, to get the feeling of when I, you know, when I put my rain over here, how do you respond? Oh, you brace against it. Oh, well, what if I do this? Oh, you soften when I do that, instead of trying to do what somebody else imposes upon us as what's correct. And so, you know, there's, everybody is different, and we all have to find that point of balance that's our point of balance, not someone else's point of balance. And, you know, so often, When I see, you know, a little tiny woman with a short thigh taking a lesson from a tall man whose leg is going to be completely different, it doesn't match. And she's not going to be able to do what he does, and she doesn't have to. She has to do what her body can do in relation to that horse. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Wendy, the whole, um, you know, what you just said, it, it just sort of embraces your whole philosophy about teaching, which I think is... Just good. (laughs) You know, people like you, I just think, you know, good, open-minded and ready to experiment. Yeah. So, you know, people can embrace that philosophy. And as you say, keep everything safe. You're not going to do it on a young fractious horse, but when you've got a reliable horse that you're with and you you can just experiment a little bit, I think that's um, absolutely great. Great. But we need, look, before we go, Last time we chatted, you talked about the safaris in Africa. Now, I know that, you know, the world's sort of turned upside down the last couple of years with COVID, but tell us what you've done since then. Did you go, you went on one last year, or just tell us a little bit what you're doing with the safaris.
1: Sure. Um, so we were supposed to go in 2020. We actually had two groups, uh, riders for um, back-to-back safaris, because each safari is nine days. Um, and so we had to move it. We moved it to 2021. And, you know, I mean, everybody was so worried about COVID, but I have to say we went to Kenya, we went to the Masai Mara and they really had it organized. You would get, go online, you'd fill out your paperwork, you'd get your PCR test, you get your QR code, you know, so there's a little bit more paperwork, but when you got there, they scanned it and everything. And they, and to exit, we did our, our tests in camp and it was all organized. So I have to say that as concerned as we were about COVID here in the United States, when and I got to Kenya, I was like, "Wow, the, you know, tourism is their primary over there, and so if they lose tourism, it's a and it was a huge impact on the economy." Um, so they have it down, and so we'll be going back in 2023. And what was so amazing about this trip, because their the tourism had decreased, um, the game has come come back even more and the land that we ride on is owned by maasai um you don't have to ride you can also go in the vehicle which is incredible because photographic safari was absolutely amazing because i i kind of split because i love doing the photographic and i like riding um, <laughs> but um what happened was um so the outfitters commit to paying the maasai a certain amount of money every year for the privilege of camping on their land and because the tourism was down, they made an arrangement with the Maasai that they could increase the size of their herds of cattle that they graze on this land. And they do rotational grazing now, so it's really actually benefited the land. You know how good rotational grazing is, and it's and it's managed very well. And if a lion says uh, kills a calf or something like that, the Maasai are compensated so that there's no animosity toward the game. And so we saw, literally, we saw a lion every single day. We saw cubs and and male. We saw, like, a group of three male, another group of two male lions with big manes. And we saw three different cheetah moms with cubs, which was amazing. And we actually saw a leopard um, in the daylight, and we watched this leopard. And it, um, she hung out in a tree, and then she came down, and... Um, she went into a warthog hole, and so we saw such amazing cat sightings. It was incredible. And then of course there's the elephants and the zebras and the giraffe. And so on the second safari, because we did the two groups, we got some rain. And it's a mobile tented camp, so we're in lovely stand up tents. It's glamping. It is not camping. I don't camp. I glamp. Um, but. We got this really big rain, and so we decided to not move camp because where we were going it was going to be quite muddy if we went right away. so we stayed an extra day at my favorite camp, which I call Lion camp because there's two prides of lions that um are at that camp, and we drove out in the morning and they had just made a kill and we watched and we watched a hyena and some silverback jackals and an eagle all come in to get parts of this kill, and the eagle flew away with a bit of it and it was amazing and then we moved to our next camp and we went in search of the migration because it was October and we we um, got in the vehicles and we drove into what's known as the Mara Triangle, which is a little even uh, more wild, if you will. And um, we drove down and it was astounding because the rain, what the the wildebeest, the gnus, they follow the rain and they had moved off for our first safari, but they had come back up into the Mara for the second safari because of the rain and we got up on top of this knoll and we looked at, we were looking at over a million wildebeest, it was amazing it was like amazing, just black dots everywhere you saw and we went down and drove through it and it was just astounding so, you know, you never know what you're going to see when you go there because of the rain, because you know, I mean one day to the next it can be entirely different Um, but, you know, the game that we saw was just crazy just amazing and um and they've gotten more horses on the the, our outfitters have gotten some new horses they just brought um they got a palomino quarter horse now and they've got two appaloosas and um And some uh, bigger horses, they just brought two horses up from South Africa. So they're always improving their herd. They're always uh, looking, you know, for newer horses. And, of course, some bigger, more stout horses. They have some what's called Boaped crosses. Boaped is a South African breed, really tough and sturdy, hard feet. And um, they've crossed them with some Frisians, so they have some nice size to them and lovely rides. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow, really wow. Just, uh, and look, if you want to, um, this is for the listeners, if you'd like to know more about the um, safaris, just go and have a look at Wendy's previous chats. I think, um, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll go back. Just go to horsechats.com, search for Wendy or search for Murdoch and you'll see all those chats and links to the safari, I think. Uh, it was number number five, I think, uh, number 699. Or just, you know, go to iTunes, go to wherever you're listening to the chats and look for number 699, and um, we talk about horseback safari, which is just unique, brilliant. So thanks, Wendy. Thanks for chatting today, and thanks for chatting to us about the safari, and I look forward to you coming back and chatting to us again. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's great to catch up with you. It's been a while, so thanks for- uh,
0: Thanks, Wendy. Bye-bye. Take care, bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe.